There is an entity that permeates every aspect of our existence. Into every moment of history, it is altogether real, certain, constant. Yet, you can't see it, hear it, touch it. Intangible, but we feel it. The way it radiates out into the pulse of our daily lives. Its impact is everywhere. It shows up in physics, the amount of energy transferred over a unit of time. It's revealed in the incandescence of the light, electrical current moving from source to ball. It's demonstrated at the sporting event, when an athlete sends a ball crashing through a net. But it also wields its authority elsewhere, in the advances of armies as they pursue conquest. It fuels the verdicts of rulers, governments, and courts as they seek to make a way of life normal in society. It's unleashed in the storm of revolution, layered in the rhetoric of tyrants who assert their will over others. Its abuse fuels the cries of the marginalized, spurring on both protests and rebellions. It is wielded by all, from the rich and powerful to a small child taking their first step. It has the capacity to take objects, people, ideas, concepts, beliefs, ethics, and history from here to there. Its name is power. Power, defined as capacity or ability. When we act in power, we make a difference. We make a change. Entangled in every area of life, power goes by many names. Authority, control, force, strength, rule, energy, influence, leadership. Power crashes into every sphere of our life, reminding us of what we already know, that power is unavoidable. So that begs the question, what are we to make of power? How should we think of it? In what ways are we designed to wield it? Should we? We've seen the good that has been done by our ability to act, the progress and advancement that has come about because of the exercise of power. But we equally know that for its unlimited potential to create order, beauty, and growth. The possibilities of its dark side are just as vivid. The same power found in nuclear reactors, a power that's stable, efficient, and capable of sustaining life for many, provides the fuel of nuclear warheads that decimate cities and eradicates all living things. For all these reasons and more, our relationship with power must be examined and explored. Does it exist to be freely unleashed in a visceral demonstration of our control, our rights, our desires, our raw power? Is the end game to vanquish others in a pursuit of authority, dominance, and greatness? Or is power intended for something else entirely? A gift given by an all-powerful creator a generative and sustaining ability we possess to bring order, beauty, thriving, and life to the world? Which vision of power will move us from here to there? All right, well, good morning again. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Yeah, you gotta be doing good because you got Labor Day. Hopefully you have some plans uh, to be restful and relaxed with family and friends this weekend. And we got a gift last night. The Ohio State Buckeyes won their first game. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, OH. 
That's what I'm talking about. I knew I had a good crowd this morning. So again, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. Uh, if you don't know me, allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. And uh, this morning, we are heading into a sixth installment or our sixth installment of this series that we have been in called Power. The series has been called Power. And so basically what we've been doing in this series, as you can probably see from the video that we just watched all together, uh, this series, this subject of power is a very important, uh, man, it is a very relevant and it is a super applicable topic. Because I think something we all know, whether we consciously recognize it in the moment to moment of our daily lives, uh, we all know that power is a big deal. It intersects and interfaces and interweaves itself in every part of our being, in every part of our social interactions, in every part of our world. And so basically in this series, we have been looking to examine specifically what God has to say about this amazing power, this capacity or this ability that he has handed over to us as human beings, that for whatever reason, in God's good designs, his good purposes for the world, that he has handed over to us this amazing thing called power, this ability to take something and move it from where it is and transform it and change it by the exertion of energy to a different place. We can move it from here. We can move things, relationships, people, objects, all that from here to there. And so uh, in this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking each week at maybe some different aspects or different dimensions or facets of power. And so after an introductory week, we first took a look at the relationship between power and authority. In other words, who has the power or the right to tell you what you should do with your life? Uh, then we looked at this amazing passage of scripture in 2 Peter 1 uh, that speaks of the immeasurable power that God has given because of what Jesus has done through the Holy Spirit to God's followers, to Christ's followers, to give us the opportunity to have our lives transformed, to genuinely experience life change. And then we proceeded to look at the relationship between power and our rights, our privileges, our prerogatives. And last week, Pastor Tony walked us through this very amazing yet super paradoxical relationship between this idea of power and weakness. That for whatever reason, in his sovereignty, God has determined that he wants to work his power in and through, showcase that power in and through weak, foolish, and despised things. And so this week, we are going to continue and look at a different uh, uh, element or aspect of power. We are going to be talking this morning about power and witness, power and witness. All right, so for starters here, uh, what I could do to begin our service here today in this conversation is I could attempt to give you an amazing degree of persuasion. I could attempt to exercise energy and power to persuade you of the absolute relevancy of this idea of witness to God's designs for human power. I could attempt to do that with everything that I've got, and I would probably be met with like marginal return on investment. But this is one of those kind of interesting spots where the subject of power and witness, man, God's word has something really cool to say about power and witness that I believe will tee up this conversation, the relationship between these two ideas in a way that I could never do if I tried to do it by sheer intellect or rhetorical prowess alone. And so with that being said, here's what I want to do. I actually want to dive right into a passage of scripture today in Acts chapter 1. 
Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. We're going right into the Bible today, so if you brought your Bibles with you, I encourage you to begin making your way out to Acts 1. Uh, If you do not have a Bible with you, that is completely okay. There are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 will be on page 758 in those Bibles. Okay, so as you're making your way there, I just want to give you a brief bit of context because we are dropping into, yes, it's the first chapter of Acts, but the author of Acts, this early Christ follower, early church Christ follower named Luke, uh, who writes the book of Acts, has actually already written an entire account of the life of Jesus. It's the gospel of Luke. And so right here in Acts chapter 1, the context to catch up to speed, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead, and after about 40 days of interacting, interfacing, and conversing with his followers, in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that Jesus is about to gather his disciples together before he is going to ascend into the heavens to take his rightful seat on the throne next to God the Father, to take his rightful seat as the one, the Lord over all all the world who has all authority, power, and dominion. And in tandem and in partnership, will now begin to rule the entire world in partnership with God from that vantage point. And so right before he goes away and ascends into heaven, he gathers his disciples, and he says, he says one really key important thing that the disciples are going to need to know before he goes away. And so this is what Luke tells us about this little scene in Jerusalem In Acts chapter 1, Luke says, Then the apostles, who are also known as Jesus' disciples, these 11 guys at this point, the apostles gathered around him, this would be Jesus, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Just pause here real quick. Uh, In this time period, if you were a Jewish person, you would have readily known that your nation, your people group, was presently subjugated under the rule of the Roman uh, overlord, of the Roman powers. Now, if you were also a Jewish person this day, you would have been continually reading and invested in your sacred scriptures in the Old Testament. And these guys, the prophets, who were spokespersons or mouthpieces of God, were perpetually giving you an anticipation that one day God was going to come, he was going to raise up an anointed king known as the Messiah, and that when God would raise up this anointed king, the overlords and the oppressors of the Jewish people would be thrown off, they would be conquered. And so these 11 Jewish men are here with Jesus. They've just seen something. They've witnessed a resurrected man. No one has ever been raised from the dead. They've never seen anything like this. And so they're thinking, we believed you were the Messiah. We believed you were the anointed king before this. But now we're almost certain that you're the one. You're the one that is finally going to liberate us and free us from this Roman rule. And so their expectation is, their question makes sense, right? Is this the moment, right? Is this the time when it's finally going to happen, when the kingdom and the rule and the reign of God is going to come through you and we are going to be free? Now notice Jesus' response. I love this. He responds, he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. Let me paraphrase. Jesus says, don't worry about it, right? The Father has that one on lockdown. You don't need to know the answer to that question yet. But here's what Jesus then says. Here is what you actually do need to know before I leave you, before I go away. 
He says, but you will receive power when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes on you. This will occur in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2. There is power from on high that enables and mobilizes the disciples to do what Jesus wants them to do. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, your city, and in all Judea and Samaria, your surrounding regions, and all the way to the ends of the earth, all the way to the extent of the globe. And after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. All right, so as much, uh, for as much as we could like mine and unpack the good richness of what is happening here, I thought what I would do is just summarize, I think, in a helpful way, hopefully, what Jesus is saying to the disciples before he goes away. Let me just summarize it. I think when you take all this into consideration, Jesus is saying something like this to his disciples. You're the plan. You're the plan. Someone laughed because you're like, yeah, that's not a good idea, right? But this is what Jesus is saying in short and summary, isn't it? Guys, you're the plan. That yes, I am going to leave you. I'm going to go away. I'm going to take my seat on my rightful throne as Lord over the entire cosmos of both dimensions of that cosmos, God's space, the spiritual realm, as well as human space. I'm going to be Lord over it all. I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you without the power and the capacity to be able to accomplish something very important. Yes, Jesus says you're the plan, but I'm not going to leave you alone. He says, I am going to dispense for you. I'm going to give you the capacity, the ability, the power from on high. The spirit will descend on the plan bearers. And this power, this capacity or ability is not merely so that the disciples can feel more self-actualized or feel a little bit better about their life. This power is not the equivalent of grabbing a book from the self-help section of the Barnes & Noble bookstore. No, this power is for a very strategic, global, and indeed cosmic purpose. The power of the Spirit will descend to the plan bearers that they will then go out. They have a purpose, and the mission, the purpose of the disciples is to accomplish Jesus' mission, to let the entire world know who's in charge and Lord of the world, and that forgiveness of sins and life can be found in relationship with him. So this power is gonna be poured into followers of Jesus for the purpose of accomplishing Jesus's mission. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I like take in the scene and when I summarize these concepts in this way, I don't know, maybe especially uh, for those of you who follow Jesus, I don't know, there's a scene here, like it just pumps me up. Did anybody else like get excited and jacked up about this? Apparently, I'm the only one, right? Because think about it. Like, the words here that Jesus says in these concepts, doesn't this sound awesome? You're like, divine power, Hulk smash, right? Gospel conquest. Jesus is going to be made famous. His name is going to be heralded in the skies, right? And more people are going to come to know his salvation life. This is awesome. You're like, yes, yes, yes. Man, on paper... Or on iPad, if you choose to read that way, right? On paper, I mean, this is such an inspirational thing, isn't it? You start to get jacked up and super excited about what Jesus is saying here. That is until you begin to consider or think about the implications of what it would mean for a follower of Jesus to actually, literally, faithfully fulfill that task, right? Now, let me ask you guys, has, has this ever happened to you? I'm embarrassed to say it. it happens to me all the time. Has it ever happened to you where you get so excited and energized and enthusiastic 
about the idea of something coming to pass, about the idea, but you get really excited about the idea, but when it's actually time to execute on the idea and the task, you're like, I'm calling in sick that day, right? I'm calling in sick that day. And guys, I think, especially for followers of Jesus, this can easily happen to Christ followers when it comes to the idea of being the plan of Jesus and doing something that is nothing less than absolutely world transformative and world changing. That, that after the endorphin rush of these spiritual possibilities that Jesus dictates for us here, we remember that Jesus' mandate in Acts chapter one was not merely for 11 dudes who hung out with him in the city of Jerusalem when he issues these words. That in fact, the rest of the book of Acts is going to communicate for us pretty clearly that the responsibility of taking the hope of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for the world, is the responsibility of every Christ follower to take that across the known world, to take that across the globe. That until Jesus returns, <clears throat> until the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority are fulfilled, that Christ followers have a mission, that we have a job to do, that it's not time to call in sick. Instead, it's actually time to get to work. And so sometimes for a lot of us, when the allure of gospel conquest fades from our vision and our view, we can easily find ourselves saying things that I have, again, ashamedly said in my mind and wrestled with so many times before. I say things like, yeah, that, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Jesus, do you see? Like, Jesus, I know me. I know how incapable and incompetent I am in my own life. Jesus, some of you may say things like, well, Jesus, I'm the plan. That's not a good idea because I can't even give a presentation to like six people at work without sweating through three shirts. How in the world are you going to accomplish this thing through me? And for a lot of us, we feel that the biggest obstacle between us responding to the commands of Jesus to take his message out, to be his witnesses, the biggest obstacle is our own inadequacy, our own incompetence. And maybe even for some of us, we're like, that's not as big of an issue as much as it is like, I don't know how to get that job done. I'm ignorant of the steps that would need to be taken in order for me to accomplish this. And I think in summary, for a lot of us, when we think about this, when we think about the implications of what it would mean to actually have this happen in our lives, man, we just feel stuck, don't we? We just feel stuck. And sure, we read in this passage that Jesus is the one that's going to supply us with all the power that we need to make this happen. But then we think things like, yeah, but come on, let's be realistic here, right? Because if I'm a follower of Jesus, when I met Jesus, the Bible tells me that I received the Holy Spirit. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, when I met Jesus, I'm supposed to have received this power to do this. But when I met Jesus, I didn't instantaneously have my level of influence with others who don't know Jesus ratcheted up. It's not like the guy in the cubicle next to me at work suddenly after I met Jesus popped up, looked over the cubicle wall and said, you know what? Even though I've never considered anything about Jesus before, something's changed. And I feel like you're the one that should tell me all about that, right? Has that ever happened to any of you? No. <laughs> and so we think like the influence factor, I didn't immediately get influence. I didn't immediately know 
what I was supposed to do, the next steps I was supposed to take. I wasn't miraculously endowed also with the ability to convince people to accept the truth about things like Jesus, the Bible, or the resurrection. And after all, isn't that, isn't that what's required to conquer the world for Christ? Wouldn't that be required to be a true witness of Jesus? Now listen, I can tell you that I have again thought these things an innumerable like number of times. And it gets me sometimes depressed and discouraged. But as I looked in the past week and a half, as I began studying and looking into and investigating this passage in Acts chapter one again, I gotta tell you guys, I saw something. I, I think I made a discovery, and maybe it's not even me that made the discovery. It's the, the, the Spirit of God, I think, focused my attention on something that I had literally never considered or conceived of this passage before. I think I made a, a profound and crucial discovery that I'm excited to share with you today. That The discovery I made is this, is that although I might often feel internally... I might feel like the greatest hindrance, the greatest problem, the greatest obstacle for me to fulfill Jesus' commands, the greatest hindrance is actually my inadequacy or my ignorance or my inability. I actually don't think that is the biggest problem. I don't think that's the biggest problem. That quite possibly, my biggest problem is not with my inadequacy or inability to take the gospel out to the known world. That it doesn't have to do with my inadequacy to do this but it actually has to do with how I understand and how I define this word right here. This word witnesses, this word witness. So what exactly does Jesus mean when he employs this particular term? What does the Bible intend to communicate when we encounter this word that Jesus has called his followers to be witnesses? And I got to tell you guys, if we begin to just get a surface level understanding of the Bible's teaching and what it communicates about the idea of witness, I am so convinced that there would be nothing short of a paradigm shift in our understanding as to what spreading the gospel to the known world really entails and how the Holy Spirit specifically supplies followers of Jesus with the power and the ability to get that job done. So, if I'm anywhere close to accurate with that, if what we need to know is how the Bible and Jesus would have understood the idea of witness, where, is, where do we start? When I think we start here, it begs this question, right? How exactly does the Bible define witness? How does the Bible define witness? Well, for starters, because many of you who know me is I'm a word nerd, so I am actually going to give you uh, the words that lie behind in the original language of scripture, the words that lie behind this word witness that we discover in our English here in this passage. So let me introduce you to a couple friends of mine, okay? So first of all, in the Old Testament Hebrew, so again, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the word that usually lies behind the English word witness in our translations is the word ed, good old Eddie. So if you know an Ed, you can go to them after service today. You can go to him and say, hey, listen, man, your, your name means witness. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Ed, Ed. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Eddie. We'll call him Eddie, okay? So here's Eddie. That's in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, Greek, which is, this is actually literally the word that lies behind in Acts 1-8, the word witness in our English translations, is the word martus. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, martus, martus. So we'll call him Marty, okay? So I got my, let me introduce you to my friends, Eddie and Marty. So you got Ed and Martus. Well, here's what you need to know right off the bat with these words. 
First and foremost, you need to know that Ed and Martus are part of the set of legal language that appears in the ancient cultures in which the Bible was written. So it's part of what you need to be thinking when you think of the word witness is courtroom, legality, judiciary assemblies. That's what you need to be thinking. And here's, here's what's surprising to me. Surprisingly, these ideas actually are not, uh, with Ed and Martus, are not altogether far off from our own understanding of what a witness would be in our 21st century modern context in a courtroom, not too far off. You see, for us, I mean, if we're thinking about it this way, a witness, what is a witness? In a courtroom, well, a witness is a person who has been called by a judicial body And this person called by the judicial body is simply to take the stand. And what are they doing on the stand? Well, what they're doing on the stand is they are recounting an event that they observed. They're encountering something they experienced. And as they do that, they're doing it for the purpose of uncovering what actually happened. Uncovering the truth about the legal matter that is being debated within the courtroom. So witnesses, in effect, say something like this. They say, hey, I'm taking the stand. I saw an event, and my role here in this event is to give a faithful reproduction, a replication of what actually occurred. Now notice with me, get this. They are not asked to say, I am persuading you to a particular opinion. They're not asked to say, well, I expertly crafted a buttoned-up presentation that is going to convince and persuade everybody in earshot of the validity of my opinion. No. Witnesses, at its core, witnesses at their core, are faithfully communicating what they know to be true from what they have seen and experienced. And like I said, these words, Ed and Martus, as they appear in Scripture hundreds and hundreds of times, are communicating some very similar concepts. And we could go to any one of these passages to kind of showcase how true this is, but let me just give you one example in Jeremiah chapter 32. So in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is called by God to purchase a field from his cousin. And so if Jeremiah is purchasing this field, he knows that there are certain steps that he needs to take to attest to or certify that the transfer of property from him to his cousin is legal, it's legit, right? In front of the eyes of the court and in front of the eyes of the world. And so this is what Jeremiah says about this episode in verse 9 of chapter 32. He says, I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. That was the price for the purchase of the property. But what does Jeremiah do? He says, I signed a deed. It's my signature. He says, I also sealed the deed with a wax signet so that everyone in the future, if they were questioning as to whether this event actually happened and the property was actually mine, they can know that that signature is not forged. It also contains my special seal. He says, I signed and sealed the deed. Now check this out. I had it, what? Witnessed. So now all of a sudden, we have more people coming in, coming around to watch and observe, to experience the legit legal transfer of property. He says, I weighed out the silver on the scales. I think this is interesting. The witnesses are also there for the weighing on the scales. So Jeremiah is not paying 16 and a half shekels. He's not paying 17 and a quarter shekels. He actually paid the 17 shekels. There are witnesses now to prove that if, again, anybody in the future were to question whether Jeremiah actually gave 17 shekels, the witnesses come around and they say, yes, I saw it. I'm going to tell the truth. 
He says, I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, who is Jeremiah's assistant. He says, he did this in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the, what? Witnesses who had signed the deed And also, there are more witnesses here who are gathered around in this open-air court, in the city center, in this marketplace area of all the Jewish people, of all the Jews that were seated around in the courtyard of the guard. Now, notice again, in order to make the transfer of property legal and official in the eyes of others, Jeremiah takes these certain steps, and it absolutely includes bringing people around him to certify and legitimate the transfer of the property. So we not only have these witnesses who signed the deed, but we also have everyone encircling or coming around Jeremiah to prove that this is true. And it kind of looks maybe a little something like this. If you had Jeremiah in the city center, if he's actually doing the transaction with Hanamel, if he's purchasing the property... The witnesses are, in effect, those who come around and observe the event. It's almost like the witnesses are intended to provide a 360-degree, fully robust and clear view of the thing that was taking place in the middle. In fact, you almost get the impression with this word and this imagery here, you almost get the impression that the witnesses, as they surround the event... They create a kind of frame. Like if you've ever had a picture and you put it in a frame, the frame and its borders are designed to focus your attention onto the beautiful art, the main event that occurs in the middle. So likewise, the witnesses are there to create a 360-degree comprehensive frame that focuses our attention onto the actuality and the truth of what occurred in the middle. Now, I think what's helpful here is that this is, this is awesome when I discovered this this week. The optics of this, if we look at it this way, it helps make sense with why the Hebrew word ed or our buddy Eddie, if you look that word up in a Hebrew lexicon, the word literally, the first entry word literally means to encircle. Isn't that cool? It means to surround. In other words, witnesses are either people or sometimes in scripture they're objects that create, in effect, kind of like a circumference around the event that, like that frame, is designed to focus the attention of others who weren't there onto the legitimacy of the event event in the middle. And so going forward, if anyone at any point was questioning this, if they were called upon, these encirclers or these witnesses, these eds, would be faithfully committing to recount what they experienced. Again, hear this. Witnesses are not being asked to persuade or coax someone through clever argument or rhetoric. They aren't making a sales pitch. Witnesses are not like used car salesmen. Witnesses, hear this, they're simply telling the truth of what they know and what they've seen and experienced. So these ideas of witnesses actually took me back. So if we are going to say that we are witnesses of Jesus, it kind of took me back to a time in my life in the mid to late 2000s when I used to work for a bank in downtown Cleveland. And so every day when I would go down uh, into downtown, I would park in my parking lot. And every day there was about a 10 minute walk from my car uh, to the corporate offices. And then at the end of the day, it was right on back from the offices to my car. And every single day, actually twice a day, I would always pass one specific landmark that I will never forget. And the landmark that I passed, if you can see it here on the screen, was this. You guys remember this? Anybody remember this? Anybody? Right? 
So what was this but an altar to the patron god of Cleveland at that time? His name was LeBron James. And this altar was posterized on the side of a skyscraper, on the side of the Sherman-Williams building, right? And so this was a picture of LeBron James. And the Nike gurus, the marketing gurus at Nike, they were genius because they borrowed a phrase that's literally repeated in the book of Acts by early followers of Jesus to speak of what they experienced about Jesus after he rose from the dead and did what he did through the church in that book. They literally borrowed, they stole that phrase to say, hey guys, we are all encirclers of this event of epic historic proportion that is LeBron James. Now, do you guys remember uh, how great and how awesome, do you remember, remember when LeBron came into the NBA? Does anybody remember that? Man, he was such a monster of a basketball player, wasn't he? Just like, and he utterly dominated the league when he was only 19 years old. He was so highly touted just coming out of high school. Everyone dubbed him the chosen one because of the great potential that he had. And certainly, LeBron did not disappoint. He was a great basketball player. But if we're looking at what Nike says, that we we are all witnesses, let me just ask you, what is it exactly that made us all witnesses encirclers, testifiers to the greatness of LeBron James. What made us witnesses of LeBron James? Well, I I think there's actually two elements. There's two ingredients. Number one, I think we are witness, we were witnesses to LeBron James when we simply began to examine and look at his stats, right? Uh, What are statistics, especially in sports ball, basketball, right? What are, what are statistics? Well, statistics are certifiable attestations of the truth. And the statistics very clearly, definitively, objectively, whether you liked LeBron or not, the statistics proved that LeBron was great. They told the truth. I mean, if you were to look at the first seven years of LeBron's tenure in the NBA with the Cavaliers before he moved his talents to South Beach and then came back and he's a hero again, right? Like, so, but if you look at this, his stats every year just keep getting better and better. The guy came in as a rookie and scored an average of almost 21 points per game in his rookie season. Now, if we were going to examine these stat lines, which we don't have time to go into today, right? but if we were going to examine these stat lines, these things, we would discover very clearly that the objective facts of this truth-telling were perpetual attestations of LeBron's greatness. And the stats, these things told the truth, didn't they? These were objective facts that validated his unbelievable basketball skill his unbelievable basketball prowess. We were witnesses to LeBron's statistics, his greatness. However, as good as the stats were and as much of a part of what it means to be a witness as they were, the stats, right? You get get where I'm going? The stats could never tell the whole story with LeBron. They could never etch out the whole story. Guys, did any of you ever show up at a Cavs game and just watch this guy play? Did you ever show... Did you ever join the 25,000 other encirclers in the arena, the Eds in the arena that created a frame of focus on the massive event of this six foot nine behemoth of an athlete that was absolutely ravaging every other player, right? Did you ever experience that? Now, think about it. These two essential aspects, there's the stats that LeBron has, but there's also the experience of witnessing and watching him play. And when you experience LeBron play, it affirmed his greatness in ways that transcended the stats. They transcended the stats. Now, let me just show you here really quickly 
the stat line of LeBron James in game seven of the 2016 NBA Finals. Remember that game? The one that got the monkey off of Cleveland's back? The one that reminded us that God doesn't, in fact, hate Cleveland sports? Let me show you LeBron's stat line. Look at this. The stats tell the truth. We'll just look at a couple. 47 minutes of play. Guys, there's only 48 minutes in regulation time in a basketball game. 47 minutes plus. The guy scored 27 points, which is great in any other game, but this is game seven of the NBA Finals. He scores 27 points. Look at the next two, rebounds and assists. 11 rebounds, 11 assists. These three things are what is known as a triple-double, which is, again, difficult enough to execute and to do in a regular NBA season game. It's really hard to do. This guy did it in game seven. The stats prove definitively the greatness of LeBron James as he played in game seven of the 2016 NBA Finals. But here's what I want to show you. I want to actually zoom in, not on any of the stats that we looked at already that are phenomenal in themselves. I want you to zoom in on this stat right here. Blocks, blocks. So LeBron recorded, statistically speaking, three blocks in game seven of the 2016 NBA Finals. And that is an impressive stat, especially for a small forward, three blocks. But actually, if you experienced LeBron play, if you took in game seven of the finals, you know, you know that this did not tell the whole story. That actually, you only needed to know and experience one block that absolutely changed the course of the entire game. And that block was this one. Man, this is so great. I hate the Warriors. I do, I do, I hate the Warriors. But here is this block, right? Andre Iguodala of the Golden State Warriors coming down clean on a fast break, ready, completely open to just finger roll lay up that thing right into the basket. And it would have put the Warriors up with about a minute and a half to go. It would have changed the very complexion of the game. The Cavaliers may have likely lost if he rolls that thing into the net. But then you got LeBron. Run, that's the worst like run, slow run I've ever heard of. All of a sudden you're like, no, Andre's going into the, what is this wizard flash-like thing coming from behind? LeBron's running and all of a sudden he shows up into the frame, leaps up and swats that orange mess out of the arena. And look at Andre Iguodala. He's like, oh, come on, you can't do that to me, right? Eat it, Andre. Anyway, like, but man, the stats told enough. But all you needed to know to witness LeBron's greatness in bringing a championship to Cleveland was that you would experience, you would watch the freakish athleticism, the freakish athleticism, and for those who embrace both of these things, both the statistical greatness, as well as the experience of watching this guy play, we were all witnesses. Because what have we done since then? What have I just done right now? We have turned around and we have told the truth about the athletic greatness of this basketball player. Now guys, as silly as it might sound, I actually think that when Jesus commissions his followers to be witnesses right there in this passage that we looked at in Acts 1-8, I actually think that being a faithful witness to Jesus involves those same two ingredients, those same two things. First, I think being a faithful witness to Jesus 
absolutely involves the stats. It involves the stats. It involves going to this amazing collection of books that God and his sovereignty has orchestrated. These books that we know as the Bible. Book, these books that create themselves a witness. They focus our attention on the main character of all of history, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the central figure. He is the hero of this biblical story. And as followers of Jesus, we have this amazing privilege. We are invited to invest ourselves into the scriptures to know the stats, to know the truth about Jesus, to invest ourselves in the objective reality of his greatness and his lordship, whether we're feeling it or not. We have this opportunity to invest ourselves to know the story of Jesus more deeply, to know more about him, to pursue who he really was, that we can go to the scripture and know that Jesus was God of true God, but that he didn't consider equality with God and his comforts of heaven to be something that was leveraged or used to his own advantage. No, instead, God of true God takes on flesh to be with us, to suffer with us, to experience everything that we experience as human beings, to reveal the Father, to live a perfect life, to demonstrate for us in his life and ministry the true designs and plans of God for what being a human being made in God's image is really all about. To know through investment in the story of scripture that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That there is forgiveness and life in his name. That Jesus on the cross took upon himself all the rebellion, all the weight of our sin and death. He took it onto himself as our substitute, absorbed it, defeated it right there at the cross so that we might go free. That Jesus literally, historically, bodily, he rose from the dead. We know this because of scripture. And he right now, because he's ascended on high, is in fact, whether we like it or not, ruling and reigning as Lord of the entire cosmos. He is in charge. All power, rule, authority, might, and dominion is in fact his. And that Jesus is going to come again, literally, historically, bodily. He will come for his people and he will vanquish sin and death forever. He will set up the new heavens and the new earth to where those who would follow him by faith would inherit eternal life, life with God forever as it was always designed. This is the story that we are invited to comb and probe the depths of. These are the stats about Jesus. And we are invited by God to know that story more and more. To continually gaze upon this world-altering narrative. So that we can then, as his followers, turn around and faithfully tell the truth about everything that we learn and everything that we know. But in the same way that the stats alone do not make a witness. Guys, you got to know that it's only when we take these stats and we use them to turn and move closer to Jesus in relationship to not only just know about him, but to experience him in relationship. To experience Jesus in relationship. Man, this, this is where we find the true power to, gen 
genuinely witness to him. That when we enter into relationship with him, we also discover that as the plan bearers, we are being transformed by that relationship into living embodiments, living reflections of the Jesus who reigns on high. That's what Jesus wants to do in the experience. See guys, I am just so utterly and totally convinced that the greatest witness that any of us could offer to the hope of Jesus, the greatest witness we could be to communicate Christ to the world, the greatest witness is not better stats. The greatest witness is not better methods. The greatest witness is not better rhetorical strategies. The greatest witness is not knowing more of the Bible than the guy next to you. The greatest witness is not memorizing more of scripture. Those are good things, but I am just so convinced that the greatest witness, guys, the greatest truth-telling you could do, the greatest proof that Jesus is real and that he has offered forgiveness to the world, the greatest proof that Jesus is real is your changed life. That's it. That when you experience the relationship with the risen Lord of the world who loved you and who gave himself up for you, you discover the power of the Holy Spirit isn't just to make you a better communicator. That the power of the Holy Spirit to make you a witness is power to transform you through the relationship into something that looks like Jesus. Into something that looks like Jesus. The greatest proof to the world that Jesus is real is you. It's your changed life in relationship. Because remember, Acts 1.8 says, you are the plan. And the power that the Spirit gives is a power to transform you into a more pure and vivid reflection of Jesus. And that can only happen when we take the stats and have the stats lead us to relationship, to participate in an abiding relationship with him through the stat book. And when you and I become that kind of witness, when we both know the biblical story more and more, and when we discover the things that Jesus has done to transform our own lives and our own stories, when we have those things together, all we need to do, guys, to the world is just tell the truth. Tell the truth of what you know and tell the truth of what Jesus has done for you. I love the way one scholar has summarized this. He says, the book of Acts is all about showing how the apostles inform and enable others to be a part of a community of followers of Jesus and to share in the task of bringing others to Christ, the mission, the purpose that we have as followers of Jesus. But he says in the final analysis, Luke, the author of Acts, indicates that effective Christian witness involves a sharing of the apostolic testimony to Jesus, knowing the story, combing the scriptures, knowing the objective truths about what Jesus is, who Jesus is and what he's done, but also a demonstration of the spiritual and moral transformation that arises from personal commitment from a relationship to the risen. So to be witnesses to Jesus, we are invited to know the story and we are invited to have Jesus come into our own story and tell the truth. I'm gonna ask the band to come up at this point and uh, all I wanna do here in closing, just take the next couple minutes 
is just to provide you hopefully with some maybe reflection questions that you can leverage or utilize either while we're worshiping together in this time of song or even after you leave today to reflect on this with Jesus, to move you toward relationship to Jesus, to move you to conversation with Jesus maybe throughout this week. So all I wanna do is I just wanna invite you to maybe ask yourself in concert with the Holy Spirit a couple of reflection questions. And these reflection questions, I'll put them around the two elements, I think, of what it means to be a witness, knowing the story, and then, or knowing the stats, and also knowing a person. So firstly, to know the stats, maybe you could just ask yourself in this time of worship or this week perpetually, Jesus, what is the next step for me to know the gospel story more deeply? What's the next step? What is a step that I can take? Where are you leading me to, Jesus? And quite possibly, Jesus, what are resources that you've put in front of me that are obvious, that are at my disposal to pursue this knowledge. Now, let me just say, if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, and the life or the death of Jesus to forgive you of sin, and the life that Jesus promises you, if the Spirit is doing something in the inner recesses of your being, if he's igniting you toward Jesus and what he offers to you, my suggestion is that your next step is your first step that your next step, if the Spirit is doing that, your next step is to say yes to Jesus, is to take the life you're presently living and trust him with it, hand it over to him. And man, just watch progressively what Jesus is capable of, capable of doing in your circumstances, in your story, in your life, to utterly transform everything about you, to give you the life that he longs for you to live. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning and the God is doing that work in your heart and you know it, just say yes to Jesus. And then after the service, let me know, let the Welcome Center know. If somebody brought you here who's a Christ follower, let them know. Just let someone know because we wanna celebrate with you and we wanna provide you more resources and support to help you grow in the experience of who Jesus is so that you can be a true and verifiable witness to him. But if you're a Christ follower, if you're not a Christ follower, you have resources at your disposal. I encourage you to ask Jesus of those things. What are they? And I would just maybe make a suggestion that if you're a Christ follower or even not, we have something, and it's actually, there's a class coming up. We have something here at Medina East called the Equipping Division. Uh, the Equipping Division is a, basically a series of practical ministry, applied ministry training courses that are designed to resource the follower of Jesus to know their faith and to experience Jesus more deeply in discipleship. And so literally on September 20th, we are going to be launching an eight-week class in the equipping division called, What is the Bible? <laughs> Maybe we should call this thing, What are the Stats, right? So listen, if you have never taken this course, and if you feel compelled to dive in more to a knowledge of Scripture so that you can become more equipped with the reality and the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done and you got to RSVP. you got to sign up for what is the Bible in the equipping division. It's, that's not the only resource that's at your disposal, right? But it's one that we as a church believe highly in and want to make available to you. And then lastly, in the same way where we're asked to know the stats, maybe knowing the person experiencing Jesus and deep in relationship, maybe you could ask some similar questions of Jesus. Jesus, what is the next step for me to experience you in relationship? And Jesus, what resources are at my disposal that I can pursue that relationship? These are things like life groups. How are we capable of receiving the love of Jesus through his followers if we're not in a biblical community? 
And equally, how can we learn to grow to serve others and to have Jesus work through us to love and serve other people if we're not around other followers of Jesus? I mean, life groups are a perfect opportunity, a golden opportunity to do that. They're not the only form of biblical community that's out there, but they're what we offer. It's a resource. You gotta get into a life group. Maybe for some of you, another suggestion would be this. These things called spiritual disciplines. Man, spiritual disciplines are rhythms, they're habits, they're practices that we can work in habitually into our lives. Man, these practices, we glean them from scripture. They don't earn anything before God. There's no magic to them. It's not like we earn superstar bonus point Christianity level, like if we like achievement level if we do these things. No, these are simply these habits and practices that attune our hearts and our minds to the reality of the grace of God that is always available at every moment. So my encouragement to you is to maybe dive into a study with another person, maybe start up a relationship, a disciple-making relationship, somebody in your life group, and maybe you could even go through this book as a recommend for me, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, from this author, Donald Whitney. It's a phenomenal and very practical way that outlines the disciplines, what they're there for, and maybe even, again, how practically we can begin to implement some of these things as followers of Jesus in our lives. Regardless, whatever the question is, right, or whatever your resource is, what's the next step, Jesus? What are resources that are at my disposal to pursue a relationship with you? Because the bottom line is, when we invest ourselves in the story of Scripture, knowing who Jesus is, and when we invest continually in that relationship, when we pursue those things, God is able to make us by his spirit into something that we could not be of ourselves, to be true witnesses who are able to clearly and compellingly tell the truth to the world around us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you and we say thank you. We know that because we read the stats, we read the book that you gave us, inspired of God that is able to communicate to us the facts and the reality of who you are, of what you've done for us, that you are in charge, that you are the central figure and the central, you're the central figure in the story of scripture and you're the central figure in the story of history. This long um, text book of history that God has been writing since the dawn of time, you're the pivot, you're the one. And Jesus, we are thankful that we have been invited to know more about you, to know the truth about you so that we can be better ambassadors, we can be better witnesses, we can turn around and simply communicate the reality of who you are because of the book that you have given us. But Jesus, we are also exceedingly grateful that you do not leave us alone. You don't leave us as orphans, that when you ascended into heaven, you pour out your spirit to those who say yes to you. And we are thankful that we have been given the power to have this relationship between us and you facilitated in such dynamic ways. Jesus, would you help us as those of us might be looking to know more of the stats and those of us might be looking to invest more in the relationship would you help us to dig more deeply into those things, to ask ourselves these questions, to ask you these questions? And Jesus, would you please speak to us in this time and as we go forward from this place? Would you speak to us? Would you mold us and would you shape us by this relationship into reflections of you so that we can be witnesses to tell the truth of who you are and how you love the world around us? Father, we thank you that you've orchestrated this plan and we hand our lives over to you in reflection. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.